Hello and welcome to the Hoop Collective Podcast. We talk about the NBA, which we're doing on Sunday evening. Joining me from Seattle, Washington, or at least close to Seattle, Washington, is Kevin Pelton, the machine. What's up, Pelton? I am in the city and uh, wanted to start tonight by wishing you a happy birthday, Brian. Yes, we barely got it under the wire here. Um, uh, I spent my birthday chasing around a five-year-old, so it was uh, definitely a very memorable one. We waited to do this pod until after the um, AFC Championship game, though. So, uh, worth the wait. If I, yeah, if I was a Cincinnati Bengals fan, it would be a hard night to go to sleep. Oof, be a hard night to go to sleep. Kind of like the Laker fans on Saturday night. Obviously, not comparable, but oof, rough, rough man, rough times. You know, I, I'm fond of saying that I think. Um, like 99% of NBA games officiating doesn't matter. Um, uh, I look at the game a little differently than the average fan does. Uh, fans complain about the officiating nonstop. I believe that the officials are far and away the best option in the world uh, because I watch, you know, games other places in the world. And, um, uh, but that was in the 1%. <laughs> that was in the 1%. Um, on a Saturday night, uh, tough one for the Lakers and compounded by the fact that they've had some games recently that have come down to calls. And so the, that was a rough one for him. But um, it was funny, uh, Pelton. Uh, I don't know if you got roped into the uh, social media world, little freak out on Saturday about um, Jaron Jackson Jr. and the Grizzlies. Um, there was a Reddit post. And I don't, I'm never on Reddit. Um, but I have to say that, you know, I saw people talking about it. And then I started to get text messages from like uh, NBA executives, like they were looking at it. And then um, internally at ESPN, we discussed it. And I, I reached out to the league office and the league office was aware of it. <laughs> so um, basically the, there was this Reddit post um, indicated that Jaron Jackson was getting home cooking on blocks and steals, but particularly blocks that he was averaging way more blocks at home and on the road. He is the NBA's block leader. He's also the NBA's foul leader. He, he, uh, he, he goes after blocks a lot and he fouls a lot, but he's been great defensively. And, um, and it was, and it was funny. Just, it was just funny the way it played out because a lot of people who have been, you know, I'm sure in the prop betting game is more and more states have legalized betting and NBA prop bets are very popular um, because frankly, they're a little bit uh, more uh, predictable than individual games, especially if you don't know the full health of players. Um, there are people who were, who were uh, up in their feelings about that Pelton. And um, it led to a, um, a forensic analysis uh, for people who have like you who have access to all of the blocks that Jaron Jackson has been credited for this year led to a forensic analysis of the tape to um, check the math and, and try to defend uh, Jaron Jackson Jr.'s uh, honor. So I thought, I thought for you, somebody who watches a lot of film and does a lot of uh, analysis on second spectrum, uh, it'd be interesting to hear what you, what you thought about that. Yeah. So I woke up to this, a text from Tim Bontemps, our buddy, uh, fellow Hoop Collective member on Saturday morning, because, you know, even by that point, very early on the West Coast, relatively speaking, on a Saturday when usually the internet is, in Twitter in particular is quite quiet, 
it had already circulated that fast. It was kind of remarkable. And, you know, I guess when you start with the headline of Memphis Grizzlies scorekeeper posting fraudulent numbers and the tone (laughs) of the rhetoric, it's easy to see why it quickly caught fire. But yeah, when you dig deeper into it and, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily do it myself because of the fact that so many other people were performing this analysis. Uh, first off, I'd say, by the way, everyone can go check out all of Jaron Jackson Jr.'s blocks if you want. That's one thing that NBA.com does really well is a lot of the stats pages are clickable and you can go directly to the video and and go through all 60 of them if you want to. But uh, already our Kirk Goldsberry. 66 home. Yeah. I mean, he, they, he played tonight. They snapped their losing streak against the Pacers. I got to see how many he had tonight. I saw I it was know. at least four. That was definitely, okay. you, you got to four. Uh, there's got at least 70 home blocks now. Yeah. So Kirk Goldsberry went through all of those. So did Kevin O'Connor of the ringer and others and found that, you know, there's maybe a few that were questionable there, whether they were really attributable to him, but for the most part, it looks like he is just legitimately blocking a lot more shots at home than he is on the road. And this is also confirmed when you look at some of the other data that isn't controlled by, it's actually not the scorekeeper. This was kind of a, a semantic point. The score yeah, I'll, I'll go the through that in a, I'll go yeah. through that in a second. By okay. the way, he had five blocks tonight. Five official credited blocks in the NBA official stats. So 71 home blocks now. But if you go through the second spectrum data that does not factor this in at all in terms of his room protection, it becomes pretty clear from the tracking stats that we have. And this is maybe the most valuable stat that we've gotten from camera tracking, at least at the public level, is that you can measure rim protection really well by looking at how defenders affect opponent shots around the rim. And this is something that a is really stable from year to year, which we don't necessarily find to be the case with a lot of tracking stats and B is more comprehensive than blocks, because even though players like Jaron Jackson Jr. that block a lot of shots are typically near the top of the rim protection rankings, sometimes you get someone like Draymond Green, who doesn't necessarily block a lot of shots, but is well positioned to contest them. And he also is up there. So, you know, my buddy Seth Partnow does a point saved metric based on some of the publicly available tracking data and showed that Jaron Jackson Jr. at home is number one in the league. There's a pretty big gap. Then there's Jaron Jackson Jr. in road games is number two in terms of rim protection, which again, doesn't factor in the blocks at all. And then there's everyone else in the league. So whatever is going on, and this is a legitimate thing. One of the things that we did rule out yesterday is it's not random chance that we're seeing this many blocks and steals, which is also part of it at home as opposed to on the road. But just because it's not random chance does not, in fact, mean that there is a grand conspiracy orchestrated by the Memphis Grizzlies stats crew or that it has anything to do with Jaron Jackson Jr.'s defensive player of the year odds. Okay, so I appreciate all of that. I'm going to now try to tell everyone how a stat is recorded by the NBA. So first off, if you hear about the official score, I think that's probably a relic of baseball. You know, in baseball, there are these official scores and they decide what an error is, whether a guy gets an RBI on things. And, um, you know, there it's like one guy, he may consult mm-hmm. other people, but there's like, you know, sort of a kingmaker that decides that's going to be an earned run or not. Um, there is an official score in the NBA and that person actually uses an old school book with a, with a, with a pen and paper with a book. He keeps the score and the fouls so that if all electronic things go down, we know how many fouls, we know how many scores, the, uh, what the score is. The actual statistics 
there is an incredible apparatus that goes on. First off, there is a crew and there is an inputter and he sits, uh, he or she sits in front of a screen with a um, one of those like um, pens that has like an eraser uh, or whatever, like a where you and, and it's like a touch screen. And he or she barely watches the game. There are people uh, in their ears. They're on, um, you know, they're on headset so they can hear each other. The caller. And they're getting, yeah, they're they're getting uh, basically reports from multiple spotters. Um, so the spotters call out the plays. They're recorded and it's all kept in real time. Then right next to them, they have a screen that has the game and it has technology that they can instantaneously rewind um, uh, action so that they can add dead balls, go back and and have and, and look. So there's a the first, you know, for, you know, first off, there's multiple people calling stuff out. Um, typically, it's at, at each end of the court. Um, so I, I don't know how it works in Memphis in terms of the rotation of the crew, but chances are that one person is going to call one end of the court for Jaron Jackson. And then the second half, he'll be playing defense at the other end. And that person is going to be looking at him in the second. And so already I got to tell you, it would take two people, both given the old wink, wink to, 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 to throw it in, you know, in, in his favor beyond that in Secaucus, New Jersey, where the replay center is, where the NBA's. A hub of their digital operation is in a nondescript business park in the middle of a bunch of weeds and swamp is there is there you know their operation center and there is another person there overseeing as an auditor stat keeping in real time of the game and then even after um that process would happen. The NBA then independently, or not independently, the league itself, that has another layer of review that happens where they can go back and take a look at box scores. I will say to you that absolutely there is some measure of home cooking that takes place in NBA stats, uh, and there has been for decades and there will be for decades. For example, I remember when Chris Paul was with the New Orleans uh, Hornets at that time, and he was leading the league in assists, and he had similar kind of home road slight imbalance in his assists. He, he would have fewer assists in road games and more assists in home games. And this was, this was seriously 12 or 14 years ago. And by the way, this was just the, what came to my mind. It doesn't mean that, I mean, I'm sure this has happened many times over the years. And people looked at it and it was like, oh, it looks like they are very generous with assists in um, New Orleans, but it was for everybody. All players averaged a little bit more assists. They were just a little bit generous. And that will, you know, that will happen. It's, you know, in the, uh, you know, in baseball, uh, sometimes a guy gets to, a right-handed power hitter gets to play with a short porch in left field and he's going to have a little advantage. So, um, uh, there is variance based on that, but there is layers and layers and layers. There is not one conspiracy theory who can raise uh, Jaron Jackson or anybody else's statistics. There's, um, they, having said that, it wouldn't surprise me, Pelton, if going forward, there's a little bit more scrutiny, uh, even though the NBA had was by Saturday at noon was already debunking this as saying, this is ridiculous. We are comfortable with the stat keeping. But, um, you know, when the NBA, when sports betting was legalized basically by the Supreme Court, 
the NBA spent a ton of money and it was baseball, the NBA, the PGA tour. Um, they went around to all of these states that were trying to legalize gambling and they were lobbying. They were probably spending millions of dollars. I can guess. I don't know for sure, but they probably were lobbying all these state legislatures. And what they wanted was they wanted what they were calling an integrity fee. They were basically saying to um, these states, hey, you are going to depend on us to accurately record the stats and protect the stats, you know, make sure everything's on the up and up so that your casinos will be protected. And we're going to call it an integrity fee. You need to pay us uh, a, a, a half of a percent or 1% or whatever they wanted of the betting of the bet just to make sure everything was on the up and up. The states laughed at them and said, get out of here. You're not getting that money. And they didn't get it. But the point is, is that the NBA for a long time, it's not just, you know, to have accurate stats, they do it um, for that exact reason to make sure the game has integrity. So I've gone on a filibuster there, Pelton, but it was a long way of saying that it ain't perfect, but it's a lot more complicated than someone saying there's a scandal with the Memphis quote scorekeeper. Yeah. And as you said, like assists have been the most vulnerable to this historically because of the fact that they're so subjective, but they also have become much more consistent, I think, than they used to be. Like, I think what a lot of people thought of was, I believe there was a deadspin post about this several years ago, where a scorekeeper for the Memphis Grizzlies back in their Vancouver days, ironically, uh, said that they had basically inflated Nick Van Exel's assist total in a game that was played in Memphis and you can look back at it. And I think that those assists were pretty dubious and you mean in but, Vancouver. Yeah. In Vancouver, I should say. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now the difference home and road assist rate is I got to think I, I can't quite run, run this number in real time. I got to think this is the closest it's ever been. It's 60.1% at home, 59.6% on the road. So the of NBA has already made assist- progress of made yeah, shots. shots are- yes. That are assisted. Yeah. Yep. So um anyway. It's not as it's not as much the Wild West as it used to be in the 1990s and 2000s as I guess my I'm summary sure. here. I'm sure. And I'm sure it's only getting tighter, especially with the ability to review. Um, but my guess is um I would love for someone to do a forensic review of where that Reddit post came from, because it might just be someone who's earnest and has time on their hands, but who knows if it might be some, you know. Uh, somebody said it was just it was great uh, guerrilla marketing if somebody wanted to uh, <laughs> to yeah. try to pump up Jared Jackson ahead of All Star uh, voting by coaches um, because so many people came to his defense and he had a funny quote about it tonight. He got asked about it after the game and he goes, "I beat the case. I beat the case," <laughs> um, and he did. There was a lot of people that came to his uh, his defense. Um, so I'll look forward to, to more of that. Um, but anyway, the Grizzlies did get a win on Sunday night and um, broke their five-game losing streak once they came back home. Um, so not to, to, to me, the story of the weekend, though, Pelton, um, wasn't what happened to the Lakers. Um, although let me just say, as a quick aside, LeBron, you know, the, the Lakers announced that LeBron and Anthony Davis were going to Missed the game tomorrow in Brooklyn. It looks like, you know, they're playing a back-to-back in New York, uh, Brooklyn on Monday, Knicks on Tuesday. It looks like they chose the Knicks game as the game they're going to try to win. Um, And there's been some people who have 
pondered whether or not LeBron is sitting out of this game to try to make sure he breaks the scoring record back in LA and not in New Orleans or Oklahoma City on this road trip. And um, I don't know why, you know, LeBron, I think, is sitting out because he's playing heavy minutes right now and they're in back to backs and they've got to sit Anthony Davis out to protect him anyway. But um, the reason why Saturday night's loss stung so much wasn't just because it was the Celtics. It was because the Lakers just can't afford any losses. And, um, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure LeBron can afford to try to manipulate when he's going to break this record. You know, um, it could happen in Milwaukee, you know, it could happen, uh, you know, somewhere else. The Milwaukee thing will be interesting because Kareem, played for the Lakers and played for the Bucks, But I, I don't think he can manipulate it, pal. I think the Lakers, Lakers need every point he can score and they need every one they can get at this point. For sure, yeah. I mean, you look at the 538 projections for the Western Conference, the BPI projections we have on ESPN.com are similar. It's so bunched up. The, the Lakers are actually near the bottom of that. I guess it's the Peloton in, in this particular case in the oh, Western well Conference. Not the Pelton for people who make that typo from time to time. Uh, at, at 38 and 44 on 538's projections. But yeah, I mean, when, it, when everyone is this close, uh, one game could be a crucial difference when we get to April. Yeah, McMenamin in his uh, report after the game on Saturday, he was quoting Anthony Davis, who said he felt like the Lakers got cheated and LeBron was upset. And I remember the, uh, the Dallas game, uh, the, the double overtime game is the game where they um, had the issues, but he listed off four games in recent, there was Sacramento game, um, the Celtics game, the Dallas game, and there was one more. And, and Dave, Dave went so far as to posit that had the officiating gone the Lakers way instead of against them in all those games, that instead of being in 12th, that they would be in fourth. Um, uh, I can certainly see why someone from, from, uh, from the Lakers side would, would, um, feel that way. Um, I don't know about those other games. I do know that they absolutely, uh, got jobbed, uh, in the final seconds of the, um, of the, of the Boston game. And, and if they miss the play in tournament by one, or if they end up in the playoff play in tournament by one and not in the regular, you know, top six at the end, I can see that one being redlined, <laughs> you know, uh, being an, you know, that was the one of those that you just, you know, can't get around. And then the NBA uh, referees uh, union put out a tweet on Sunday, you know, not quoting any official, but basically apologizing for the call. And I don't remember them ever doing this. Um, and I don't really like it, to be honest with you. Um, I want to get the exact quote here. Like everyone else, uh, the referees make mistakes. We made one at the end of last night's game, and that is gut-wrenching for us. This play will weigh heavily and cause sleepless nights as we strive to be the best referees we can be. It's kind of it's kind of a verbalization of the last two-minute report. Um, nobody, Everybody hates the last two-minute report, and I don't think anybody's going to be appeased by that statement. But um, I've never seen a technical foul in between um, – and your regulation in overtime as they handed out to Patrick Beverly when he brought the camera over uh, to show the LeBron foul. Um, I've never seen the referees make that kind of statement. Um, that was a weird one for sure. Uh, but I don't think it was the story of the weekend. Actually. I think the story of the weekend, in my opinion, was how good the 76ers looked against the Denver nuggets on Saturday. Um, 
the 76ers have now won seven in a row. And with the Celtics going through a couple of little periods of uh, bumping around, um, they did break their losing streak with the fortunate call against the Lakers. But the, the 76ers have, are now one game in the loss column behind the Celtics. And when you look over at the Western Conference, they're now tied in the loss column with Denver. Um, and getting that win helped them potentially with the tiebreaker. And they've moved past the Grizzlies with their losing streak. 76ers are essentially in second place in the loss column. They have some played some fewer games and they have a, um, a more challenging schedule, but they just came out off of the West coast where they did well. Uh, Pelton, they have won 20 of their last 24 games. Uh, Embiid had 47 and 18 in that game. And they are playing probably, they are probably right now playing the most impressive basketball in the league, in my opinion. And, it's something to take notice of. I think that to me is what I'm walking away from this weekend thinking about. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, and it's, as you said, it's not just this weekend, it's the culmination of an extended period of them playing well. One of the things that jumped out to me when I did kind of the, the forensic analysis on this year's Sixers is this is the best offense they've had in terms of league wide offensive rating, you know, relative to that or ranking in the Joel Embiid era. They are fifth right now in offensive rating. They had never previously been better than eighth in Embiid's career and have only one season in the top 10. They've been really more defensive, you know, in part probably because of the fact that Ben Simmons was the co-star for, you know, the, the majority of that period. They've had three top 10 defenses previously in the Embiid era and are on track to do that again, beyond top, being a top 10 in both categories, which, you know, typically is the indication of a championship contender. Uh, they're also even playing better offense than they did last year after the all-star break when they got James Harden to, to pair with Joel Embiid. So, you know, I find that kind of fascinating because when we looked at the Sixers off season, I think the assessment was they've sacrificed a little bit of offense in order to upgrade their defense with DeAnthony Melton, with PJ Tucker, with Daniel House Jr. And, you know, those guys I think have helped them on defense in particular Melton has been really terrific there, but uh, they've, they've also, even though Tucker rarely shoots the ball, have not slowed things down offensively. Apparently he got a, he got a, he got a tip in uh, a <laughs> crucial tip in for his only basket on uh, late on Saturday. Um, yeah. It's a great point about Harden. So Harden is not going to be an MVP candidate this year, uh, but he is shooting the ball much better. And I want to point out, you know, Harden has led the league in assists before back in Houston when he, um, before he really went all in on, you know, the ISO ball, he, he actually had a season where he led the league in assists. I think it was 16, 17. And probably have more to Clint Capella. <laughs> you could be right. Throwing lobs. Um, and, uh, you know, then Chris Paul came in and that, that went down, but also, um, he just shot the ball more. He had a bunch of seasons where he averaged 10 assists. Obviously, he was a triple-double machine in uh, in uh, Houston. Um, but he is averaging the most assists in his career uh, this uh, right now, uh, over 11 a game. Um, he is not leading the league. I think Tyrese Halliburton still holds that. Um, but he is um, really passing the ball really, really well. And his just his shooting has, has come back. You know, he only shot 40% overall last year, which um, say whatever you want. I mean, he is 
always been an efficient scorer. Um, typically, it's been because he's been able to get to the line. Um, but this is actually the best he shot from the field in four years, right? Uh, right now, so he's shooting the ball more from the mid range. He's getting to the foul line less, but he's more efficient with with actually shooting the ball in his assists are way up. Well, not way up, but he's assisting the ball more than any other time in his career. And um, uh, you've got Embiid, who's leading the league in scoring, who is right now healthy. And uh, he, I think he's been battling a little bit of a foot issue, but he's obviously feeling pretty good because he's, um, you know, putting in tremendous performances. And, you know, the the injuries that they had early in the season, you know, you know, the, I see these. It's, ha- it's happening a little bit right now. People are people were dragging the Suns, and it's like, okay, well, they lost three rotation players and, and, and two of their best players for a while. Right now, the, the Pelicans are having a, a real hard time. Well, they're missing multiple players. They just got um, Brandon Ingram back, and he doesn't look good, quite frankly. I haven't seen – they played in Milwaukee tonight. I haven't seen the, what, what he did in that game. Um, but, he you know, he hasn't looked good. And so, okay, I mean, uh, obviously, a, you know, with team struggles, there's reasons for that. But you can't, you know, drag – I don't think he even uh, played yeah, he in tonight's not. game. Yeah. Um, Philly, when they were missing Harden and Maxi, they figured out they, you know, they, they put the Anthony Melton in the starting lineup. And even though they were taking it on the chin a little bit, they were able to discover that Melton was a nice fit there. And so, yeah, they were taking losses, but they learned some about their team. And when Maxi came back, they, we're able to move it into a position where he is now coming off the bench and they have caught a rhythm. And so they have, a, um, they learned something while their, while their team was struggling there. And I suspect those other teams did too. And so uh, you really gotta, you know, you really gotta put an asterisk on everything with Philly because health is everything for them. And has got to be healthy. Harden's got to be healthy. And they haven't been um, necessarily when it matters, but when you look at this Philly team and you look at the way they've been playing, and as you mentioned, the offense in this streak of 24 games, which is, you know, quarter of the season, they are number one in offense in that stretch. And you look at the defensive job that they, you know, that they did on Jokic. I mean, they can, you know, you know, Embiid is can be a significant factor defensively. Um, they haven't suffered as much with, you know, losing Simmons. They haven't had Simmons in two years, I guess. Uh, they're some, they're a team really to be, uh, to be paid attention to, I think. I think so too. And I mean, you know, I think to your larger point, the asterisk is is specifically on, are we going to see this version of the Sixers in the playoffs? Because that's what we really need to know. And in Embiid's health case, I think it's a primarily an issue of health because of the fact that he's dealt with so many of these random one-off injuries during the playoffs that have affected his availability and sometimes his performance. In James Harden's case, obviously there's a track record of him not being at his best in elimination games and the Sixers are going to need that. Uh, but you can't ask for him to be doing much more for the way they want to play than what he's been doing. The reason he doesn't lead the league in his assists is because he still hasn't yet played enough games to technically qualify. He's averaging one per game more than Tyrese Halliburton. And I think he has played enough games so far. He's at 32 now. Uh, that I, I think he belongs as an all-star reserve when the coaches vote on that. Uh, and that gets released. The, their votes, I believe, are due Monday. As for Embiid, I thought it was very amusing that uh, in the wake of that game against Nikola Jokic, 
off of the two uh, MVP uh, runner-up finishes the last couple of years. And I, I hesitate to bring that up on this podcast, but uh, I found it very amusing that Vorp was trending on Twitter <laughs> after that. And Vorp Sixers- was trending on Twitter? Yeah. Maybe yeah, a thanks. year curated Twitter. No, that no, can't no. Have... That's because Drew Hanlon tweeted about what was his warp for the game. That's why it was oh, trending. Okay. Sixers fans I were all see. tweeting out. Which, like, I, I got to tell you guys, update update your nerd stereotypes a little bit. We're much more into EPM at this point than we are. I don't even know what EPM is. It sounds like uh, dance music. That's EDM. <laughs> yes. Uh, the the uh, the acronyms can get pretty hilarious on this. I mean, I think the last question I'd ask. What, what is Sixers, EPM? I don't know. Educate me, please. Uh, I believe it stands for effective plus minus, and it's uh, put together by a guy named Taylor Snar, who used to work for the jazz analytics department. So it's it's one of the cutting edge versions of the all It's so cutting metrics. edge, Carlton. I've never, I've never heard of it. <laughs> Clearly, uh, I, yeah. you're ed- I mean, that's, uh, please. That's why I'm bringing I, I, it to the masses. Yes. Well, this is, you know, look, this is analytics. Um, this is analytics. This is leading analytics podcast. You forget about <laughs> Nate Duncan and all those other guys. This is where you get analytics right here. We lead it. Bon- McMahon is Depends which day you know, of the Mr. Analytics. You and McMahon are basically 1A and 1B in analytic, analytics, analytics analysis. I can't even say it. <laughs> Please explain to me more about EPM. So the, the difference that I would kind of, to do it simply is, the, the the stats that you see on basketballreference.com is their advanced stats. Those are all strictly based on the box score data. So now you have to uh, question the Jaron Jackson Jr. inputs, I suppose, in, in that one to go back to our earlier discussion. The, the best-in-class metrics right now tend to be the ones that combine that with also incorporating the adjusted plus-minus data that looks at how the team performs with you on and off the court adjusted for who's playing with you. So EPM is one of those. Raptor on 538 is one of those. RPM on our site is one of those. Uh, and that kind of tends to be the group that statistical analysts look at more than BORP or PER, or the ones that are on basketball reference. Vivid Seats wants you to get to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seat Rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code HOOP. That's code HOOP, H-O-O-P. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavily on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup blue and ready for the play. And boom, Onyeho Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liquor, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. How does Embiid uh, perform in uh, EPM? I mean, Jokic does well, well in all of these. Uh, right. Let me let me look it up where it is at the at the current point. It's uh, dunksandthrees.com is the the website if you want to oh. look this up. Okay, uh, if we're giving them a plug. So Embiid is still down because of the minutes played. He is down in I think uh, 
eighth this season. There's a big surprise. The lead ranks low. I know. <laughs> but but in terms center. of a per minute basis, he is tied for number two with Luka Doncic behind Jokic. Here's another stunner. Embiid was on my ballot for being an all-star starter. Yeah, that's he was on be mine too, to be clear. I guess it's we're not part of the spot. Boston media. That's what I was going to bring that up. So um, <laughs> uh, Daryl Morey, who is, well, hold on, I'll just wait. He went on um, radio in Philadelphia uh, on, I guess it was Friday after uh, Embiid, uh, Tatum basically edged out Embiid for uh, the last front court spot um, uh, in the East starting spot. Um, and uh, <laughs> Daryl went on the radio and said that Joel got completely hosed again. And the shameless Boston media being way over overrepresented in the all-star starter selection process uh, was the reason why. Now, listen, I know Daryl's smarter than this. Uh, first off, Daryl is um, basically a Boston guy himself. Um, <laughs> and uh, but this is really I mean, I, I didn't hear him. So I I'm, I, I'm skeptical that he said this uh, straight. Um, that he wasn't sort of, you know, basically tongue, what he's accusing, basically what he's accusing the, uh, he's accusing basically the ringer because I looked at the voters and there's only two Celtics, you know, based writers who were on the list, which is, um, Gary Washburn, the columnist of the Boston Globe and Adam Himmelsbach, um, beat writer from the Boston Globe. I might've missed one other, but I don't, I didn't see on the voter list but he's basically accusing bill simmons and kevin o'connor and ryan Rosillo of the ringer claiming that they would those guys voted tatum in basically first off <laughs> and being ranked higher on the uh media voting than the fan voting secondly when Embiid got passed by tatum like two and a half three weeks ago in the first returns Embiid was third tatum was fourth and the second returns tatum was was um was had passed him as soon as that happened it was very likely that joel was going to not be not make the cut um and uh so it shouldn't have really been that much of a surprise and Embiid says he's not a surprise but i know daryl he has said things before in interviews especially on radio interviews that he doesn't actually believe he's tweaking things you remember how he had to walk back all the things that he said about um when he traded for uh, Russell Westbrook, he had to walk back all the oh, things yeah, the, that he the said. The 2018 MVP vote, right? Yeah, <laughs> where he, um, you know, was like stumping for Harden. Yeah. So anyway, um, it is unfortunate that Embiid. Now look, Durant. I don't even think he's going to play in the game. So guess what? I think Joel Embiid is going to probably end up if he's healthy. Hopefully, I think he's going to be starting. But it is not an insult when Giannis. Durant and Tatum are there. It's not an insult to Embiid, but whatever. I'll tell you one thing. Embiid was having an absolute blast on um on Saturday when he did his post-game interview. And he had just an amazing fourth quarter, a couple of dagger three-pointers, made a terrific defensive play down the stretch. PJ Tucker made a couple of plays and um you know the Philly everything was kind of working for Philly. You know, the, the hardened trade right now, it looks like Philadelphia is in great shape a year off that hardened trade. 
not just because Harden is so much making more of an impact than Simmons, but when Harden takes the pay cut and they're able to get um, those sort of extra players, I mean, I know that they didn't get Melton with straight, you know, cap space or whatever, but they were able to do the Melton trade and still bring in Tucker, PJ Tucker, because Harden took the pay cut. So it's not just a trade, it's the conjunction of the Harden pay cut and the trade, but they got to feel really good about that trade a year on. We'll see what the draft pick becomes. We'll see what Seth Curry ends up doing if he resigns in Brooklyn. I assume that he will, but you know, who knows? Um, and then the big question that, is Harden's free agency. Cause either, of course. you know, he probably, if he signs a long-term deal in Philly, that, that could age differently than this current one, or they do have to worry to some degree about this possibility of losing him to Houston. Yeah. Um, you know, that Houston thing is an interesting discussion within the NBA. Um, uh, that's, uh, you know, Woj reported on Christmas day about that. Um, you know, Harden took the pay cut, but structured the contract in a way that allows him to return to free agency. And right now Harden is in this glorious sweet spot because he's performing at an all-star level. I agree with you, especially how well Philly's played Pelton that Harden is going to be named uh, an all-star reserve. Uh, he's earned it. And um, because he took the pay cut, like his value per dollar is excellent. Excellent. Because even if he had stayed at the same amount, it would have been one thing, but he was in line for a raise. So it, it wasn't just he took a pay cut. He took a pay cut plus what his what his raise would have been. That is that delta in there represents what enabled Philly to, um, to do this deal. So um, to do these multiple deals. So. Uh, but they got to feel really good about where they're at uh, a year off of that trade. And they got to feel really good about the way they're playing. And Joel was so excited um, on after the game, Cassidy Hubbard did the post game interview. And um, like he was in my mind, like he was trying to hold back a smile. He was still smiling, but like he felt so good about where they are, how they look as a team, how they're performing. And then he went in, to do post-game interviews and uh, Tim Bontemps was at the game and he wrote the story. Um, and basically um, he was like, the, he said, this is the best team's had he's had. And I know it's January and I know that it's just a, a game in January and there's 30 something games left and health and everything like that. But, you know, th the momentum is really in Philly's favor and, I felt really questionable about them at the end of last season, even if, you know, I, I did, first off, I, I wasn't sure what they were going to bring Harden back at. And I, even if they gave him the max, I just didn't feel good about where they were. And you have to, it's been a multi, a multi-person involvement to get them there. And by the way, like Tobias Harris, a guy who I thought would get lost after that trade has played really well. By the way, Tobias, I think, kick the tires on whether there would be a contract extension for him in the off season, the Sixers and he didn't really ever get traction on it, but that's another thing to look at. He's playing very well in general, some games, not so much, but he's playing very, he's slotted in very well. Maxi not only is playing well, but has expressed that he's cool with the situation. They're in a good spot right now, Pelton. I don't know if it can last, but you have to acknowledge they're in a good spot. Well, can I pose a question here? Yeah. 
How did the Sixers approach the trade deadline? Because, you know, I did a piece a few weeks ago about biggest needs for contenders and didn't really come up with one for the Sixers because I think they're they're pretty deep. You know, some people mentioned in the comments backup center in the playoffs if Montrez Harrell is more difficult to play in that context. But that's why you signed P.J. Tucker. To me, his biggest value is that he can play four for you in the regular season and be a backup five in switching heavy defenses in the playoffs. But to throw out something really bold here, like, should we be talking about the Sixers as a Jay Crowder destination? They'd have to trade a number of players to make that work and also get under the luxury tax, which I think they'd like to do. But one of those guys is Matisse Thibel, who isn't playing a lot, but might have more value to another team heading into his restricted free agency. And maybe you take some of that value you get and help send it as part of a three-team trade to Phoenix to end up with Crowder. Yeah, so what's been happening with Phoenix and, and the Crowder thing is that... And it hasn't just been exclusively these talks, but Milwaukee is ready to take Jay Crowder. And it seems like Grayson Allen is what they've have offered. And those salaries match up. And uh, even though they're technically, they're possible playoff combatants, they have done deals in the past. Remember the year they played in the finals, they did a deal at the trade deadline. Um, Tory Craig, so I, right? Tory Craig, who played significantly in the finals. So I don't think, I think that Phoenix would do that deal to send Crowder there, but they but they don't particularly like Grayson Allen. So say they don't like him. They don't they prefer something else back for that trade. So they've gone out, the two of them, Milwaukee and Phoenix, have gone out and tried to figure out a way on a three-team deal to make that work. And they just haven't been able to do it. And there's been all kinds of rumors and all kinds of traction, and God knows how. And by the way, Milwaukee has looked at other things. Um, Phoenix looked at other things. It's not the only thing that they're doing, but they're kind of attached at the hip looking for a partner on that. And eventually I, eventually Crowder is going to get traded. He's not going to get past the trade deadline. I don't think. And then, you know, be faced with the buyout. Also Woj reported that Matt Ishbia is probably going to get his, uh, the official uh, sign off to, to transfer the money and buy the, the Suns before um, the February 9th trade deadline, what he wants to do um, is also a factor. From what I understand, Ishbia has had multiple meetings with the Suns. It's not like they don't haven't talked to him and he's been kept out, which, by the way, is an indication the deal's going to close because Robert Sarver wouldn't have allowed that uh, if he thought that, you know, that, that he wasn't going to come up with the money or there was going to be a snag. Yeah. This has proceeded pretty well, pretty quickly. Um, it's interesting you bring that up. I've not heard that at all. Um, you know, they have been floating Thibel out since the summer. Um, and his, you know, he's just lost playing time with their off season moves. You know, it's, it's now it's in the, where the league is at right now, it is much harder than it used to be for, um, players who can't shoot to just get by as defensive stoppers. Uh, Bon Temps has talked about this, how a guy like Tony Allen, he doesn't, you know, Tony Allen's a guy who was extremely valuable for a bunch of his career. Um, Highly respected that it would be hard to play him today. And, um, you know, a guy like Andre Roberson, who was an effective player for a championship contender in Oklahoma city. And, and he only really got knocked, out because he had terrible injury, knee injury. 
he you know reason he's not back in the league really right now is because just nobody wants a guy who literally can't shoot at all. And that's a problem with uh, Thibault. He hasn't just demonstrated that he can be someone to pay attention to on offense, but he does have some value. I don't know um, what makes sense. I agree. Harrell has not, um, you know, there is a little bit of worry there, but um, if they're healthy, I think they're really effective. And I don't think that they should feel the need to. Right. But do anything. But one of the things that Daryl has said when he when he's not uh, joking with about the Boston media is that anytime you have better than a five percent chance of winning a championship, that you need to do everything you can to maximize that chance. And I think they fall into that category. Right uh, I now will, they do. I will yeah. say quickly on certainly they do according to the projection systems. I will say quickly on Thibault, like it's exaggerated ex- exacerbated by the fact that he's playing often with Joel Embiid, who's one of the players in the NBA who's kind of most dependent on space. I think. Would the thing I'd be really curious is if you put him in a setting where, and these two guys have become capable three point shooters, but like the Nets used Bruce Brown Jr. last year and the Warriors used Gary Payton the second, where even though they're undersized on offense, they were basically big men. And to me, a team that would be a really interesting fit there is Sacramento, since they have so much shooting, but could really probably use one more you know, combo wing defender. And then you've got Sabonis as somebody who, I mean, he doesn't necessarily shoot a ton of threes, but plays at the high post. It actually, I think, fit that style of play for Thibel really well. Yeah, uh, Sacramento is a team that hasn't been discussed much, but they're obviously in position where adding to their roster, they might be motivated to do it because, frankly, um, they could be a first-round home team. They could have home court in the first round, and the value to that is measurable to them. I mean, they could so, be the third uh, seed. Yeah, well, they yeah they were three. You know, I don't know where they are at this moment because they had I think they had two losses in the last week, but they were three a week ago. Um, yeah, it's um, there. There could be some of that some of that that goes on for sure. Um, uh, you know, I think with Rick Rusbach, who was the um, uh, chairman owner of the uh, Boston Celtics, he gave an interview over the weekend and he was talking about what he told Brad Stevens in relation to the uh, trade deadline. Now they are in the tax for the first time in like a decade or more. I can't top of my head. I can't remember. It's been a while since they've been in the tax. So they already, you know, when they did the Brogdon trade and when they signed Danilo Gallinari, um, you know, that, um, you know, that obviously didn't work out because he got hurt, but they already went into the tax with those moves. And he said, my message to uh, Brad Stevens is to muscle up. Those were his exact words. It's not about two, three years from now. It's about right now, muscle up. And so you have the owner going on the record, letting everybody know he's willing to spend more. And with the Gallinari um, contract there as a um, as ballast, um, plus they could assemble some other sort of end of the bench guys. They could get some, um, they could get some money up there. Same thing with Milwaukee. Um, you know, Milwaukee just now getting healthy with, um, uh, you know, with getting Milton back, they can assemble some contracts together. You wouldn't, you wouldn't look at I me. Mean, it's not just Grayson Allen, but they have other guys they can assemble together. Obviously Serge Ibaka has left the team and is waiting to be traded. And, you know, George Hill is a guy who could potentially be aggregated into a deal, um, there's some interest in in one of their young guys, Jordan Awara, possibly as a as a chip in in a trade. So you know those teams are out there looking. Unfortunately, there's just a lot of teams out there looking, doing that same stuff. But 
Um, you know, if we, if we know that Milwaukee's looking, okay, we now have on the record that Boston's looking. So if you're Philly and you hear that and, and you know, you're, you're, th- you're feeling you're looking around going, wait a minute, we're in good shape here. You probably have to consider the exact same thing. So, um, you know, that would be interesting to see who in the East might be able to break through and do that and who's willing to maybe go a step further. You know, the, the Sixers, um, they don't have their first round pick this year because it goes to Brooklyn. Um, they're a little bit compromised on some of their assets. So uh, we'll see. Um, you spent this bunch of this last week in Portland, um, a team that got off to a really good start and has backslid. Um, Dame, you were there for Dame's 60 point game. You were also there where Dame kind of um, got snippy with the media about his expectations for the team. I wonder if you could take us through what went happened and what you kind of saw your, your time in Portland. Yeah. I mean, that was interesting. I, I think, you know, you say sniffy and it was kind of only notable because of the fact that Damian Lillard is, I think he's won the, you know, media award for like most media friendly player. I forget what the uh, name for that award that the uh, pro basketball writers association gives out is, uh, the Brian and, McIntyre award. Oh, right. Yes. After the, Oh no, the, Brian McIntyre is for the best. PR staff. Uh, no, let me take that back. Brian yeah. McIntyre. Good man. But, um, that, that's not for that. Yeah. But go ahead. Uh, magic yeah, Johnson award. Maybe no, that's, that sounds like it might be right. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, he he's won that before. I'm pretty sure. And, uh, you know, is just phenomenal. One of the best players I've ever been around and sort of understanding what the media is doing and, you know, taking that quite seriously, win or lose. And, you know, that's what made it surprising. I believe it was disrespectful was what he said that the uh, questions yeah. he was getting after their loss, uh, that was the game they lost to the Lakers after they led by 25 at halftime. And I think it was a combination of, you know, frustration about the game and then just kind of, you know, being asked about the upcoming trade deadline and whether the Blazers should improve. The The specific question he was asked was not necessarily maybe the one that was had set him off. It was just kind of the the line of questioning, because, you know, I think, you know, I was psychoanalyzing Damian Lillard here, obviously, I don't know what he was thinking, but it was kind of like he was being encouraged to say that the Blazers needed to trade some of his teammates to upgrade because of the timeline and their urgency to win. Well, he is still capable of playing at this level, which is he's playing as well as he ever has in his career. And that's what I think he, makes it all well, more disappointing. He will be a Western Conference All-Star next Thursday, I assume. Has to be. Has to be. Yeah. So, yeah, I I was on this podcast back in November for the small sample size theater. And one of the things we talked about then when the Blazers were nine and four was that they were really outperforming what the shot quality from data from second spectrum said they should be doing defensively. And lo and behold, they were sixth then in defensive rating. Now they are 25th, which is about what we would have projected based on the shots that they were giving up at that point. That, That defense is still a little better than the last two stats years. Uh, where, you know, one of those, I think they, they were the sixth seed, I believe the year that they lost to Denver in the first round, but the offense hasn't been as dominant as those. They were top three every season from 2018, 19 through 2019, 21. They're still a top 10 offense at this point, but not quite at that super elite level that they were when CJ McCollum was really going alongside Damian Lillard. Now they started the season, uh, nine and three. And they are 14 and 
23 cents. So nine games under 500 cents. Um, they got uh, slapped around on Saturday night by the Raptors, who are in a pivotal West Coast trip right now. Um, they spent a lot of money in the offseason. Uh, and Yusef Nurkic, who has played, uh, by the way, Jackson tells us it is a Magic Johnson Award. Thank you, Jackson, our producer. Um, uh, they have spent a lot of money in the offseason, both on Anthony Simons and Yusef Nurkic, and they went and got Jeremy Grant, um, in addition to extending Dame Lillard to, you know, he's, he's really extended out now. He's going to be one of the richest, well, highest paid players in NBA history. Um, and so I think that there's, this isn't a team that is making decisions like they are want to be considering whether they should tank or not, because I do think that's something that they should consider right now, because in all honesty, um, if you look at the teams in front of them, they're going to have to jump over quite a few teams. And one thing that's very interesting is that Jeremy Grant, who is playing great for them right now, um, I'll, I'll be interested to hear what, what you think of how he's performing. He's eligible for an extension. He has a, because he's in the middle of a contract, he has a ceiling that he can extend to. Do you know what the, what the number is off the top of your head? Um, Don't off the top of my head. Okay. It's something in the 20s, 20s per year. Um, and he has not signed that extension. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I assume that it's been, actually it's been reported, I believe by the Bleach Report that it's been offered. Correct. It is not a surprise that it's been offered. It's kind of a no-brainer to offer it. Um, and I assume that he's doing that because he thinks he can do more in, in the summer, not necessarily because... Um, He's not happy to more than yeah. The problem is, is that if you can't get that extension signed, um, because right now you look at the mix of the team and you're like, it's not a winning team. Um, will it be a winning team a year from now? You know, maybe, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, it, you know, I can't see the future. What do you do with Jeremy Grant, especially when you're in a situation where this is a, a really good draft? Um, do you just, assume, just, you know, you have a conversation with them and you get a feel, um, that you're going to be okay in the summer. And so you just say, I'll write it out. Do you say to yourself, well, we're going to make this a huge priority. And if it gets into a bidding war, we're going to outbid everybody because we have his bird rights and so be it. Or do you, do I, do I say that, you know, there's people out there. I mean, there's people talking crazy about like three first round picks for OG Ananobi and, Two first round picks for boy, two first round picks and a prospect for uh, Boyan Bagdanovich. I mean, think about what would happen if Jeremy Grant all of a sudden popped up on the market um, in uh, in February. Now, I don't know if he's gonna. I'm not saying I have heard any of that, but I can see what's they got to be mulling around, and so it's not an unreasonable question to Dame if it's asked in a certain way because. You know, last year, Dame had the surgery. They took their, um, uh, um, they took their team down and, you know, went and got a lottery pick. Now, my feel from what I know about what the Blazers have done is that they want to add to this team, that they want, you know, I, I don't think it's a secret that, that if OG Ananobi 
was placed on the market by the Raptors. I mean, there'd be a number of teams going after him, but it is known that the Blazers would love to try to get OG Ananobi, just like it was known that they really wanted Jeremy Grant as well. Uh, Dame played with Jeremy Grant on the Team USA. They had a good relationship. And by the way, they have played well uh, together here in Portland. But I don't think it's necessarily a slam dunk. Like, absolutely. I think it's a conversation looking at where they are in the West, which I think is 12th place right now, 12th or 13th place. Maybe they're a little bit better than that. Um, but anyway, um, maybe it's insulting to them that I'm even su- just suggesting that they would consider maybe trying to go back in the lottery with Victor Wembanyama on the board. And by the way, Mike Schmitz, who is their assistant general manager, one of our colleagues at ESPN, Mike Schmitz discovered Victor Wembanyama in the scouting world before anybody, just about. That some of the French folks uh, maybe knew about Victor Wembanyama as I've been, um, you know, I spent some time over there recently as I've been doing uh, preparations for some stories that are forthcoming. I've watched Victor Wembanyama video as far back as when he was nine years old, Pelton. Um, Mike Schmitz. I'm trying to imagine. I've been to my I've been to my ten year old nephew's games and his practices. I'm trying to imagine what Victor Wembanyama looked at it like at that age. Well, he could barely run because his feet were so gigantic for his body, and he threw the one of the things when you hear about Wembanyama from people who've known him for a long time is he kind of throws. When he was younger, he just kind of threw the ball all over the place. Like he would try passes that were insane. And I don't mean when he was nine. I mean like when he was 17, when he was 17. Um, he's gotten better with that. But uh, that was definitely, you could see that when he was nine. By the way, he was playing with 11-year-olds in the, in the footage I watched. He was not playing with other nine-year-olds. So he was very tall, but there were there was maybe one player on the other team who, uh, who was as tall as him because he was two years older. Um, but you know what you know what he was like was he's very competitive. You hear that about a lot of guys, but Victor is very, very competitive. And like whenever his team would give up a basket as a nine-year-old, he would slam the ball on the floor. He was he was frustrated. By the way, the game that I watched the film on, he didn't start. So that kind of tells you where he was. Um, anyway, Schmitz is alleged pe- pe- people in France in French basketball, Mike Schmitz is like a He's a he's a deity. They, they just love Mike Schmitz over there. He is as close with the Wembenyama family as anybody outside the Wembenyama family, you know, in the sort of NBA sphere does. Um, he, trust me, has a very, very good feel uh, for what that guy is. He's known him for a very, very long time. Um, so obviously... This is this to, to a Blazer fan is probably insulting that I would be talking about this, but um, you were just there. Do you think I'm totally out of my mind to discuss the idea that they would go backwards and that the question to Dame, while it may have irritated him, wasn't completely ridiculous? It's interesting because I think to a degree the question to Dame was more about, you know, what if you have to trade a key piece to get someone like OG and you know, be more than that you know, trading away pieces or, or going towards the bottom. I think the difference between this year and last year is like last year, Damian Lillard was not himself. He needed that surgery, abdominal yeah. surgery. And by the time he was going to be able to come back, the season was already lost. There wasn't really anything for them, for them to play for. They're not yet in that position. So, I, I mean, I think it's probably from their standpoint, their viewpoint, similar to the Lakers with LeBron, like 
we can't afford to throw away a season of this guy playing at this level. And he was so incredible in that 60 point game. Uh, so Grant have looked this up from our colleague, Bobby Marks's great resources. Four years, 112 million is the maximum extension he could assign. I think there was a world where maybe if they had agreed on that, you know, wink, wink last summer, and he had immediately signed that once he become el- eligible, it would have made sense. But now he has outplayed that. I think he'll do better yeah. than that on the open market where he can do an extra year. He can go up to five years. The Blazers can offer up to $233 million. Oh, my Other God, teams... they can't do that. They can't. Do I mean, that. I, can't I'm that. not just saying they're going to necessarily <laughs> go that high, but that's that's like the scale of the difference between what he's allowed to extend for now and what he could get this summer All and right. why it makes sense to wait. Okay, maybe, I, maybe I'm totally, maybe I'm just out of line. Maybe I'm out of line, even talking about it. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Am I out I of line? I don't think you're out of line, but I just don't think that's how they're thinking. Now, I do think what's a question before the deadline, besides this possibility of adding, is if you're going to re-sign Jeremy Grant, if you intend to re-sign him, it is going to be almost impossible for you to re-sign Josh Hart, who has an unusual uh, situation where he has a player option this season. In the unlikely event he picked it up, it would be non-guaranteed because of the way his contract with the, the Pelicans when they signed him before trading him to Portland was structured, the the assumption is he will almost certainly opt out and, and potentially make more than that. So I think he would be the player to watch if you're going to trade someone who's an impending free agent before the deadline, especially if you can get someone back who maybe is not quite as good as Josh Hart right now, but is under contract for multiple years and can fit into your salary structure. Yeah, and I think he's a guy who would, a lot of teams would have interest in, especially some of those teams we talked about earlier. Um, um yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so what, what is your, well, in, in that, in that discussion with the media, basically what Dane was frustrated about was don't put it on him to call out the, you know, call out the front office or make some demand. He was saying that wasn't fair. And, you know, I understand why he had that position on that position. Um, you know, if you look at these teams, you know, if you look at Oklahoma city, who is, um, you know, right on the bubble now. You look at Portland, you look at the Lakers, you look at Utah, they're all basically neck and neck. Um, I'm going to put Phoenix and New Orleans a little bit ahead of that because both of them are really banged up. Booker will come back. If he doesn't come back, it's not relevant. Uh, Obviously, Zion will come back, and we assume that Brandon Ingram will start playing better. Um, of Of those teams, like, you know, you look at Portland, I mean, how do you handicap where they're at? 
and their uh, and you know you know what they're headed for here. So I mean, the good news is that compared to a few of these teams, they have a better point differential. Remarkably, they have a better point differential than the Warriors, who are sixth in the Western Conference at this point, and the Clippers, who are fourth. Uh, the the downside is. You know, a lot of what we were looking at early in the season was, okay, maybe some of they'd won a lot of close games early on. Some of the defense wasn't going to be sustainable, but that's okay because the schedule was really unfavorable and they had some health issues early on with Dame missing some time. So these things are going to even out. Well, now they've got their basically their rotation. Justice Winslow has been out during the stretch, but Gary Payton II, who missed the start of the season, has come back. They've played nine of their last 10 games at home. And I think this makes an interesting point about kind of the, the Doug Moe standings that you've talked about on this pod a lot. Yeah. The Blazers peaked. They were plus four in that by the, at the start of this home get, home stand. They'd played 25 road games and 16 home games. And the, one of the things about the Doug Moe standings is number one, like when he invented in the 80s, home court advantage was a much bigger deal. Teams usually won. Especially in Denver. Especially where, where in Denver. But yeah, they, they yeah. won like 75%. But Home teams won 67% of their games this year. It's 60%. In the last three years, including before the, the shutdown in 2019-20, when we had typical attendance, it was around 55%. So it's much closer to a 50-50 proposition now. But the other thing is, the thing about the most standings is you can't lose any ground when you play a road game and you can't gain any ground when you play a home game. You can only go backwards. So the Blazers have. have gone they're, backwards. They're, they're, yeah, they're now negative a one. lot. The yeah, way. they've gone four yeah. and five on this homestand. And that's where I think if they, it, it starts to make those decisions a lot more difficult if they don't make up any ground in the, in the next, you know, I guess it's now a week and a half here leading up to the deadline. But you probably have to give yourself something to feel good about that beyond just the West is wide open. And they went four and five at home and Dame scored 60 in one of the wins. Yeah. And it scored. So, like had multiple, had a 50 in one of the losses. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to read a you know, Joe Cronin there. Uh, he's done a really good job. I actually felt like, um, you know, you look at his body of work taken over. Um, I, I was really positive about what he did. Now the Nurkic contract, I understand why they gave Nurkic that much money, but Nurkic has not, his stats, are comparable but it doesn't it doesn't feel like he has had the kind of impact this year as he's had in past years um and this is something i've written about actually is that part of the issue here is just like if you look at the production by the average center now it is enormous like the efficiency Mm -hmm. of the average center is like a you know we're used to in terms of true shooting percentage it used to be like 550 was the league average and now it's more like 570 in that range. For centers, the average center, it's like 630 because of the fact you have guys like Nick Claxton who are shooting 75% of the field from the field now. So if you've got someone like Yusuf Nurkic, who is more versatile, does more creating his own offense in some t- at times than someone like Claxton does, but isn't approaching that level of efficiency, it makes them a lot less valuable than they used to be. True. And he's also not a stalwart defender. Yeah. Um so, um, yeah, that's true. Um, I just, you know, the, you know, um, I see people, com- you know, people are, are always complaining about DeAndre Ayton. No, he's a very good player, you know. Um, you know, Nurkic got 
quite a bit of money this offseason. Nobody really batted an eye. But that was a significant move on their part. You know, he has a, he has a really good, you know, historical, um, um, you know, as the, as the guy who sets the screens for Dame. And, you know, part of the reason why Dame has struggled at times is because it was when Nurkic has been out. Um, he's just very valuable in that eye. So, you know, when you look at his stats, it doesn't include all the, all the screens that he's setting for Dame. So I just want to be fair about that. But, um, but I, would, I would say that there are moments where it feels like they're a little better off with Drew Eubanks in there, who's a, a slightly more athletic defender. And Chauncey has made that decision on a couple of occasions, yep. if I'm not mistaken. So uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know whether I should be watching the Blazers closely or not. Um, I just, um, it just, it feels like I should. Does that, I don't know if that makes sense, but, but I, I don't think that they're there. I think that they, that they do want to add. And the other thing is, yeah, you're, you're dealing with Damon his prime, but he's in his prime and you've got him signed for a long time. And that, figures into your calculus um some part of maybe helping you know taking advantage of dame is maybe trying to get him another really good player another good young player and or you know you maybe you're in the lottery even if you don't get super lucky let's say you get another top 10 pick and you have that pick plus some of the other things you have on your roster and then you can go you can go searching for a star player another star that um, that uh, you know you bring into next to Dame um, in addition to uh, Grant if you want to keep him. So I think that all figures into this. Um, but Portland is a team, you know, a lot of people are watching Toronto, and rightly so, but Portland's record and Toronto's record are very similar. Um, and, uh, you know, Portland has, you know, one of the things with Toronto is what do you do with Gary Trent and Fred Van Vliet, guys who – you could absolutely resign, but our free agents to be, and you don't know where you're going. And maybe your pick could be, I think, by the way, I think Toronto's in 12th place too, just like uh, Portland. I mean, you know, they, that was an interesting game on Saturday night when they played. Um, Fred had a great game in that game. Toronto won. Um, but like I've talked been talking about Toronto a lot. Maybe I should, you know, now I'm starting to talk about Portland as well. So, um, all right, Talton, thank you so much for joining us um, on the Sunday night. Uh, Thank you to Jackson, our producer. Thank you for listening. Hope you all had a great weekend and we'll uh, talk to you later this week.